And isn't it alarming the number of people that we're seeing in the street who are, they're not just just lending support to Palestinians. They're pro-Hamas. It's pro-Hamas, 100%. Hundreds of thousands of people in the street. So that if you're, if you're Jewish in Britain, do you feel safe by what you see happening in London and in not Birmingham, but in Birmingham, England, and these kind of places in New York, Chicago, elsewhere? The anti-Semitism, the rise of anti-Semitism is, is paralleled with what we're seeing in the violence, the violent rhetoric towards evangelical Christians, towards conservatives, towards white people. It is. It's, and it's actually obvious if you have an understanding of theology and who made us and, and why he made us, it's clearly theological and spiritual in nature. What, what is the one thing that unites Christians and Jews that for how you know however long we've been around seems to get the whole rest of the world to constantly be after us. Hmm, I, I wonder what that one thing could be. <laughs>
uh, DOJ, everyone. And it's shocking because you'll see these random shootings somewhere where it's a white guy. And within five seconds, like the, the shell casings haven't even hit the ground. They're like, oh, we've checked his Facebook posts. This guy was a neo-Nazi. Uh, he wore a Trump hat one time. And the, the real danger we have in this country are MAGA terrorists. I mean, within seconds, uh, they had these narratives out there. And on this one, we knew pretty quickly what the motive was. And they said, we got to shut this down. We're going to make sure the manifesto goes nowhere. Uh, DOJ is going to lock it down. So when we finally got a glimpse of it, uh, thanks to Steven Crowder uh, g- getting a couple pages of it. How it, did he do that, by the way? I don't know. Do you have any idea? How no, I, 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 I wish I knew. I was actually really impressed because everyone has been trying to get that for months. Um, he got it. I, I presume it was from a law enforcement source, just looking at, at the pictures, but I don't really know. So hats off to him for getting it because that was impressive. And we see in there that that this woman just wanted to kill white people. She was angry. She hated these kids. Um, she hated their white privilege. That's why she was going to kill them. And, I mean, you want to talk about a, a fatal narrative collapse. That's it, which is why within minutes of Crowder having this out, Facebook was already blocking links to it. Google was already blocking links to it. It's shocking how little our own government trusts us to handle factual information. That, that's how much they actually hate us, is that they will cover up facts uh, that we all have a a need and a right to know, they will cover them up because it's inconvenient to their political goals. 100%. And in this case, um, we're seeing not just the suppression of this, but we're seeing deliberate misinformation that has been put out regarding it, as you say, for the longest time. Supposedly, this is some kind of fascist. Or that this is an individual who has been provoked into doing this. It's because of the I mean, you've seen the signs. They're crazy signs. The uh, these these rainbow type signs that say things like uh, "Stop the trans genocide." Stop the. Tra- Where's the trans genocide? I'm, I'm I'm not aware oh, of a trans genocide. I will tell you where it is. You want to talk about uh, it, trying to be eradicated or extinct? They they want to go do genocide against us. The first person who's killed whenever there's uh, this transition is the person that God initially made. The person who was born with the body that God gave them, with the names that they were given, the first act of violence that happens in this transition is the person against himself or the person against herself because they hated themselves so much they wanted to fundamentally change who they are, which is impossible, by the way. So when I see that from them, they hate themselves so much that they're willing to mutilate their own bodies, mutilate reason. And they've been encouraged to do it. Yep. But somehow we are the villains for telling them, no, actually, you were fine the way God made you, because he made you in his image. Somehow we're the villains. Somehow we are the perpetrators perpetrators of violence. Um, I don't use this word lightly, but it's demonic. It's mm-hmm. truly demonic. It is denying nature. It's denying reality. And it's leading to nothing but misery and pain and violence by these own people against themselves. Yeah, I, I agree completely with that, Sean. Um I feel that the left, the Biden administration, but I mean it's Obama, it's it's I mean it's the it's the global left that they work very hard to create an atmosphere of violence, an atmosphere that that encourages violence and it gives them a measure of deniability. 
Um, in fact, I have been quite surprised that there's not been an attempt on Trump's life because they've poured out so much, you know, Hitler rhetoric and hate in that direction that it is, I think, an attempt to create that kind of atmosphere where they can go, well, you know, we didn't know that that was going to happen. Gosh, we're really shocked. We're really surprised. We're, and it's the same as a school shooting. We've created an atmosphere of hate towards white people, towards conservatives, towards Christian evangelicals, so that someone like this now finds kind of pseudo-intellectual reasons to commit violence, and also with something of a confidence that they might get away with it. Yeah, what it's there's a term that the left loves to use. They don't know what it actually means because most of them are idiots. Stochastic terrorism. Mm -hmm. Are you familiar with this term? Yes. Uh, so it, it refers to a, a very particular type of mathematical equation where you give it a certain distribution, but then you let it uh, randomly fluctuate within this defined distribution. So it can go randomly up and can go randomly down. They apply this to only people on the right and say that we have created this environment with all of our hate and our lies and our racism so that uh, a vulnerable person on the margins will hear it and go out and commit violence. What they're doing when they say that is projecting mm -hmm. because it's what they did with BLM is 100% what they did with BLM. They, they created this fever pitch environment with all this ridiculous racial rhetoric. And by the way, don't you love all the racial healing that oh, we yes. got from, from Obama and yes. Biden? Isn't it wonderful? I mean, um, he's a uniter. Yeah, absolutely. Bringing, bringing us together. Change. <laughs> so they create this environment <clears throat> and do the very thing they accuse us of so that they can have people go out and torch uh, police stations and burn cities to the ground and throw firebombs into courthouses. You see it happening now with the anti-Israeli, the anti-Jewish protests where- and Isn't that frightening? Yeah, there was a man, I can't remember what city it was, who got attacked by a, a pro-Palestinian. And yeah, and, and died. And where are the vigils for that person? Where's the outcry? Instead of actually having a discussion about what caused that, what kind of environment was created that led to that, mm -hmm. no, they just kind of push it away. Of course. Everyone's going to encounter pain in their life. The questions deal with the degree of one's pain and the source of one's pain and how we deal with our pain. In this course, I'm speaking very personally about my own pain and some of the lessons that I've learned in coping with pain, how we minister to people with pain, and what kind of perspective are we to have on the big questions that surround pain and human suffering? Why would you take a course like this? Well, presumably, if you haven't suffered in your own life, you will encounter people who do, and undoubtedly some of them are people who are very near and dear to you. I think it'd be very helpful for you to take a course like this in order to understand what they're experiencing and the way that you minister to people in those kinds of circumstances. So I'd love for you to take this course of mine, and I wanna tell you this, that when you subscribe to Tome, you get access not just to my course, but to more than a hundred other courses that are dealing with very practical issues and assisting you in living and in flourishing. So where can you get this course? Well, you can't get it at Amazon. You can't get it at Apple. You can't get it at Netflix. You can only get it at Tome. So I want you to go to tomeapp.com slash pain to learn more about my course. Let's get back to the podcast.
And isn't it alarming the number of people that we're seeing in the street who are, they're not just just lending support to Palestinians. They're pro-Hamas. It's pro-Hamas, 100%. Hundreds of thousands of people in the street. So that if you're if you're Jewish in Britain, do you feel safe by what you see happening in London and in not Birmingham, but in Birmingham, England, and these kind of places in New York, Chicago, elsewhere? The anti-Semitism, the rise of anti-Semitism is, is paralleled with what we're seeing in the violence, the violent rhetoric towards evangelical Christians, towards conservatives, towards white people. It is. It's, and it's actually obvious if you have an understanding of theology and who made us and, and why he made us, it's clearly theological and spiritual in nature. What, what is the one thing that unites Christians and Jews that for how, you know, however long we've been around seems to get the whole rest of the world to constantly be after us? Hmm. I, I wonder what that one thing could be. <laughs> it's, it's a mystery. I guess we'll never know. <laughs> yes. It's, uh, it's really quite fascinating. And um, you started talking about the suppression, the censorship of the what did you call it earlier? The censorship industrial complex. There we go. The censorship industrial complex. The censorship of this manifesto. What is happening in regards to that? Um, how is this? How does this whole censorship industrial complex work? What does it look like from your perspective as the head of the uh, the Federalist? What are you witnessing? What are you experiencing over there? It's a great question. So it it is tempting to look at what's happening with people getting kicked off of Twitter, or Facebook, being banned from YouTube, to assume you know what these are these are left wing companies and they have left wingers working there. And they're private companies. They can do what they want. And they just don't like our point of view. And that's fine. It's tempting to look at it like that. That that would be the wrong way to look at it. What we actually have is a sprawling complex within the federal government. It's run out of the State Department and the Department of Homeland Security. They do it under the guise of, well, we want to make sure that foreign governments are not propagandizing Americans with false narratives and themes that might be good for our enemies and, and bad for us. So you hear that and you're like, yeah, that, I kind of make, I, I get that. We don't want foreign governments coming in here like the Soviets did and trying to brainwash us, but that's not what's happening. They are using laws that give them money and power under the guise of stopping foreign misinformation and they're turning it, again, turning it against their domestic political opponents. And so you have the sprawling complex within, within DHS within the State Department called the Global Engagement Center, where they get people across government to come together, feed information into a central database about narratives and people they want to suppress, and then they forward those to the people at all these different tech companies, at Google, at Twitter, at Facebook, and say, hey, we're really, really concerned about this misinformation. From Sean Davis. From malinformation. Um, <clears throat> you really should put a stop to it. Wink. And they say, oh, no, we didn't tell them to do it. We know the government couldn't possibly tell them to do it. But we've told them we'll be very unhappy with them as their regulator if they don't, if they don't do something about this. That's censorship. That, that is illegal. We, we have a right in this country still, even if it's being ignored, to speak how we want, to report what we want. And the government can't do anything to stop us. And yet that's exactly happening now. Uh, I personally was targeted in 2020. I and saw that in I a very your tweet. Orwellian Kafka esque way. 
So I say lots of controversial things. They're all true, but they're controversial. But in this particular instance, I had read through a Pennsylvania Supreme Court decision that happened right before the election in 2020 that said, in contradiction to state law, that uh, county election offices could take ballots that came in late after the election that were not postmarked, and they could count them as valid, and they were to assume that they had been mailed on time. So I took a screenshot of that Pennsylvania Supreme Court decision. I quoted the text in it. I gave a link to the government website that, that hosted it and said, this is what they did. And they tried to shut me down over it. They censored my tweet. They put a warning over it. They said it was misleading about a civic or election event. And we, we found out recently that wasn't done because some lefty at Twitter uh, got a bug in his pants about it. That was done because the federal government dispatched someone to go get that taken down because the regime thought it was inconvenient for them. Which That's how a republic dies, by the way, is when you have a government acting like the Stasi going around and telling people, no, 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 you can't say that because we don't like it. Well, I recently, it's interesting, you mentioned the, uh, the Stasi. I recently had on the show, um, Anna Funder, who is the author of Stasiland. She's an Australian writer. And uh, that book, I picked it up in a London bookshop, you know, 10 years or so ago. And it's, uh, it's a brilliant book, a, a, a bestseller. But it was, it was interesting to hear her perspective about how the Stasi worked and how they never actually disappeared. They just began uh, to show up as advisors and companies and, and this kind of thing. And how they were trying to stop the flow of information, to control the flow of information, intimidation, threats, all of this. And of course, is exactly what we're now seeing in Western governments. I mean, they are behaving like a Stasi. And the Twitter files really exposed a lot of this because it was demonstrating how there was collusion between government agencies and Twitter, and certainly Facebook and others too, but it was Musk who was putting this information out, where we were seeing, I mean, really seeing under the hood what all of us knew was happening. But it was still even shocking, even though you knew it, it was still shocking to see the communications, the level of collusion, and the efforts to shut down another opinion. To me, listen, um, I suppose I've made my name, if I, if I have a name, I made my name in debates. Uh, and part of what we did in our debates, debating the existence of God, uh, debating issues like um, gay marriage and um, you know things like uh, intelligent design and so forth, was because I was raised in a very American tradition and an academic tradition that said, you get your time to speak and I need to respectfully hear what you have to say. Uh, and then you hear what I have to say, and you allow me to say it, and then we we spar that this is the way it works. And then if you can't do that, it is an indication that you fear truth. You you don't have confidence in your position. So the the only reason I would suppress what you're saying is because I fear what you're saying, because I don't believe I can win in the marketplace of ideas. And to me, this is so very telling about the left that they know they can't win on trans ideology. They know they can't win a debate on Marxism and its validity in Western culture, that they can't win on open borders. They simply can't do that. I mean, is that the way you perceive it? Absolutely. <clears throat> and and there, it's interesting looking at the dynamic and how people are responding to it now. Um, there's a temptation to look at this and say the regime is doing this because they are so powerful 
They're so confident. They don't think there are going to be any consequences for what they're doing. And, and I disagree with that point of view. What they are doing comes from a position of extreme weakness mm-hmm. and fear. You don't do these kinds of things when you're comfortable in your position. When you know you're right, when you have the confidence that truth is on your side, you have no problem letting someone else be wrong around you because then you can correct it because you know that you have the facts and the truth and reality on your side. When you want to shut down debate is when you know you can't win. When you know that it's just, it might be a little spark that leads to a wildfire mm-hmm. that you can't control. And that's how the left right now views speech. They, they think they have a responsibility to prevent that spark from ever being lit because they know if it happens, they are going to completely lose control. And if there's one thing the left wants over all of us, it's control. They want to control uh, what we learn in school. They want to control where we drive. They want to control if we drive. They want to control whether we can defend ourselves. They want to control our health care. They want to control everything. And the one thing that they're having a very difficult time doing on that is speech. And it's why they're so insistent on shutting it down whenever they can. Yeah. Uh, there's absolutely no doubt that that is what is occurring. And I I find that fascinating because you know, used to, um, when I would speak on a college campus, students might not have good arguments. Uh, some of them did, but they would line up, you know, with the mics and you don't want to come after you after you've given a talk and, um, they might be upset, but they're ready to argue with you. They want to argue with you or did these days it's to shut you down. It's, we don't want Sean Davis on campus. We're not going to allow him to speak. Well, why not? Well, of course, they'll say it's because he's a fascist, you know, or uh, spreading disinformation when the reality is they fear the arguments. And so I would find myself speaking somewhere where there's an effort to shut down what I'm saying and to mischaracterize what I'm saying. And I even had one professor say to me, say this to me, as I, you are not allowed to speak anymore. Wow. You're not allowed to say any more. And uh, I was speaking on, um, I happened to mention abortion, and he went apoplectic. And it was within the context of the, uh, actually, topic that I'd been asked to speak on at the last second, you know, as I'm about to talk, as I just finished my book, Around the World in More Than 80 Days. And I'd ended that book with a reference to the Declaration of Independence. We hold these truths to be self-evident that, that all men are created equal and endowed by their creator with certain unalienable rights. And among these are life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. And so here I am talking to this, um, this group of students, and I said, you know, <coughs> Um, it's interesting that the guys who penned that didn't seem to think that people of color, you know, f- fell under that provision. A civil war had to be fought in order to extend extend that statement to them, those rights to them. And I said, but the battle's not over. I said, there's another people group that still does not have this protection. And somebody said, what is that? And I said, well, it's the unborn. I mean, it's the unborn. And there was an uproar. How dare you? How dare you say that? And to shut me down right there on the spot. This is where we find ourselves so that there's a lack of critical thinking because there's a lack of meaningful, thoughtful dialogue that is taking place in the academy and um, and in the broader culture, which I, which I find um, extremely alarming. Do you think that one of the reasons that the left treats the American people with such contempt is because not necessarily they're confident in their arguments, that they're confident they're going to win because they're going to rig the election? Oh, absolutely. 
Absolutely. I mean, Biden, did, Biden didn't campaign in, in, uh, in 2020. And my own feeling is there, there I, I know a lot of campaign guys, you probably know way more than I do, who will say, we're going to win this battleground state, we're going to win this. I always find myself saying, no, you're not. Because until you take ballot harvesting seriously, until you take illegal immigration seriously, until you take election rigging seriously, no conservative is going to win anything. Do, do you agree with me on that? I 100% agree with it. And it's been so frustrating watching Republican Party leadership, whether it's in Washington or, mm-hmm. or the state level, not take any of it seriously. And I, I don't know why that is. I don't know if it's because a lot of them just don't like Trump, so they're fine with whatever means being used to get rid of him so they can go back to the good old days where they yeah. go start wars with no consequence and they get to give handouts to all their buddies and it's just a nice little fun clubby thing for them to do. Donald Trump blew that up. So it, it could just be that, yeah, we're fine with it because it got rid of Trump and you know the, the ends justify the means. Could be that there's no money in it. There's a lot of money in running ads. I mean, if you, you want to get rich in politics... Uh, just start a, a ad buying or a media buying company and just throw millions and millions of dollars uh, and, the, and then take a, take a little cut off of it. So it could, it could be money that there's a lot of money in ads and there's little to no money to be made in get out the vote uh, activities, or it could just be sheer incompetence. I, I expect it's probably a combination of all three. But if you can't control your process of how people vote, if you don't have... Uh, absolute certainty that from the moment the ballot uh, leaves the hands of the government and comes back into a box that you know the chain of custody. If you don't have confidence in that, how can you possibly have any confidence in elections? And I still find it wild thinking back to 2020, where for the first time ever in America, seemingly overnight, we had tens and tens of millions of ballots going out in mail to people who didn't even request them. They come back in, and they had the audacity to tell us this is the safest and most secure election ever, ever. It, it was like watching Saddam Hussein before he was overthrown claim that he had 99% approval. Yeah, isn't that, isn't like, that incredible? You couldn't just say, no, we're, we're confident this is secure. You had to come out and say it's the most secure, the most safe, uh, least fraudulent election ever. That's madness, and it defies common sense because the further you get from a person uh, making their choice and casting the ballot, the more distance you create there, the more opportunity you have for fraud. And so I'd ask someone, would you be confident if you had a 1000 bucks of cash, throwing it in an envelope, and just sending it to a friend? Would you be confident that that money was going to get there? Maybe a little, depending on where you live. Or would you be a lot more confident in handing that money directly to a friend just like this? We all know everyone will say the same thing. They think here to here is is the safest, most secure way to do that. Why would you not treat a ballot that way, a vote that way, which to me is worth far more than $100 or $1,000? I mean, it's, it's priceless. And yet we just treat it like it's nothing. We, we, we are told, we're conned into believing uh, because it's been drilled into us. I don't know, mail's totally safe. It's totally fine. That's a joke. I'm, I'm sorry. Now, there may be ways to make it better. I'm, I'm not 100% opposed. You know, if somebody can't leave their home, being able to get an absentee ballot. But this business of mailing out tens of millions of ballots to addresses you haven't verified to voters who didn't ask for them. We all know why you're doing that. And we all know why you're opposing efforts to end that. And it's because the people who are mad about securing elections are the people who are trying to rig them and steal them. 
Yeah, I, uh, 100%. Uh, and do you, do you think that naivete plays any role here on the Republican side? Or do you think it's it's a cynical disregard for the rules because they benefit? Or do you think it's a little bit of both? I think it's probably a little bit of both. I mean, you're, you're not going to go broke betting uh, on the incompetence of Republican leadership. I've, I've been in this business too long to look at them and think, oh, yeah, these guys are totally dialed in. They know yeah. exactly what they're doing. They're constantly Charlie Brown getting ready to kick the football that yeah, Lucy yeah, pulls yes, away from yes. him. So, I mean, I, I think it's a little of column A, a little of column B. Uh, but it's frustrating because when you talk the way we do about it, we get dismissed as kooks or election deniers or election truthers. And that scares uh, the, the spineless people in Washington. Oh, well, I don't want to be called that. I, I was at a talk that Dick Army gave. Gosh, probably, Boy, that that is a name I have not probably heard twenty in a long years time. ago. Okay. And it, it 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 was seared in my memory because it was such a good word picture and it captured the dynamics in Washington so well. He said most politicians are cowards. You got maybe forty percent on either side that are totally dug in, but you got this squishy middle, which he called the bedwetter caucus. And he said the key to getting anything done in Congress is you have to control the fear of the bedwetters. If you can control their fear, they'll do whatever you want. And unfortunately, so many of our squishy people in the middle, Republican squishy people in the middle, their fear is owned by the left. They're terrified of being criticized by the media. They're terrified of being called a racist or a fascist or a sexist. And so that fear allows them to be controlled by the left. And it, it's 100% happening with election stuff, because just look at J6. January 6th was done. The, the left made that a huge deal because they saw an opportunity there to make it impossible to criticize them for how they run elections. Because if you criticize it, and if you even looked in the direction of the Capitol that week or that month or that year, we're going to come after you. We're going to raid your house at dawn with a SWAT team, guns drawn, and we're going to throw you in prison for two years, solitary confinement with no contact with anyone before you even get a trial to teach you a lesson. That's what's happening right now. I, I'm, I'm honestly sick of it. I'm sick of the cowardice and spinelessness from leaders uh, on the right where they don't understand what's happening, maybe because they're not at risk. But this can't go on. You can't go on where one side is allowed to rig elections and the other side isn't even allowed to notice it. Yeah, I appreciate your passion, Sean, because I feel very much the same way. What do you think is happening with some of those politicians, say somebody like a, a John Thune or a, Jan, a Dan Crenshaw, you know, individuals that you felt like, yes, you know, we've got a real conservative going to go in there. This isn't, this isn't a rhino. This is a real conservative. And then they get in there and they become rhinos. Do you think that they were rhinos all along or do you think that somebody has something on them and that they're somehow intimate. I mean, because we see this a lot. What do you think's happening there? You've spent some time in DC. I think some of them go in and they're crappy when they go in and they just get crappier the longer they're there. I think most go in for good reasons and they become acclimated to the environment there. And they come in, they say, I'm, you know, I'm just going to take this place by the throat. I'm going to do exactly what I said I was going to do. And then they start getting whispered to, oh, no, that's, that's not really how we do things here. So you're a freshman. You're just going to sit in the back, and we need you to learn. So we just want you to watch and learn. And by the way, here's a, here's a nice Sherpa for you who's been <laughs> yeah. here for 10, 20 years. He really knows how to get things done here. You just knows stick all the with good him. restaurants in Ex town. Exactly. Yeah. It happens slowly like that. It's the frog in the pot of boiling water where I think, yeah, there's a couple people who show up who just suck to begin with. But I think so many of them – get they become uh, uh, 
they become taken by the siren song of, oh, well, I want to be effective. And, you know, I was going to come up here and just serve a couple terms, but I think I'm really good at this. Yes. And, and, and my state deserves to have someone of my caliber up here. So I need to just play the game and play along. I'll say one of the only people I ever saw who didn't fall victim to that was a man I worked for, Tom Coburn. Uh, a man who delivered babies for a living would go home and deliver them for free because the Senate said, well, you can't possibly be making money up here. We, we, you could be getting corrupted uh, by gum. So he went out and, and he didn't care at all when anyone thought because uh, he was going home after a couple years. He was there to do a job and he's out. And they don't, the people in Washington and permanent Washington don't know how to deal with people like that. They're used to the people who can be manipulated and cowed and scared into doing what they want. The person who doesn't want anything and the person who doesn't care is untouchable. And it's something I tell uh, young student groups when I talk to them, that if you want to be powerful, if you want to be untouchable, if you want a superpower in this age of politics, stop caring what people think. Because if you only care what God thinks and what your spouse thinks, you're set. No one can touch you. No one can make you afraid. No one can bend you to their will. And this culture cannot handle people like that, which is why they try to shut us down. We have a new sponsor to the Ideas Have Consequences podcast, and that is John Candor, C-A-N-D-O-R, johncandor.com. John is a faithful member of the posse, a faithful listener to this podcast, and he sent me some of his products. Take a look at these beautiful shoes, which I've been wearing, this other pair of beautiful shoes, all leather, um, which I have been wearing in this beautiful wallet, which I just received yesterday. And so I don't yet have my credit cards and such in it, but I'm American flag on it. It's lovely. Listen, some of you have been faithful supporters of Mike Lindell and my pillow, as you should be, because we want to support conservative businesses. Maybe you're tired of pillows and sheets and slippers. Well, Christmas is coming, and these kind of leather goods are just fantastic. I personally love leather goods. I really do. And this stuff is fantastic. Take a look at this travel bag, which is uh, which is really beautiful. It is handcrafted, and you will find it all on johncandor.com. Support John. Support his work. Christmas is coming. Members of your family are going to love this stuff. I know it. So johncandor.com. You know, some of the most interesting conversations that I've had have been with just ordinary people in the third world. I I travel a lot in, uh, in my work and I've uh, spent a lot of time in third world countries in South America, Africa, Asia. And it's fascinating because you know, talking about election rigging and the corruption of politicians and uh, so many of the things that we're seeing, these are people who've seen the movie before. They, they know it. And I think whether or not the politicians themselves, there's any naivete there, there certainly is on the part of the American people because we believe, you believed, I was raised to believe in the integrity of our elections. I was raised to believe in the integrity of the process. And, and well, you know, they won fair and square, so we got to get behind this president. You're always respectful, my father would always say, to the president of the United States, to the office of the president of the United States. I'm not sure he felt that way towards, you know, just before he died. But that was, that was what we were all, we were ingrained with these ideals. And now I'll be talking to somebody in, let's say, 
Peru or in uh, Brazil, and they will say, <clears throat> you're, you're becoming like us. We've, we don't trust our politicians. We, we see the very things that, that this is what they're doing before you become a socialist country. And uh, it's fascinating to me because Americans, when you try to tell them this, it is, it is a little bit like you are, you know, you're, you're, you're coming back from the front lines to describe something they've never seen and they're not prepared to believe in. And hence, as you'll say, uh, someone will say to you, oh, you're an election denier. Oh, this is ridiculous that you would believe this. People coming out of the third world don't have any difficulty in believing and identifying this for what it is, a, a woman I follow on Twitter um, whose name suddenly escapes me, forgive me, um, she is uh, from China. And she's calling this stuff out all the time. You know, the, the, what January 6th is, she sees that exactly for what it is, for the, um, the propaganda that we've seen on the vaccines. And whether or not you think that vaccines are you know, healthy or not, that isn't my commentary at this point. There's no question that there is massive propaganda and money to be made in that industry. And she says, look, I've seen all of this a million times before, and you people don't understand what's happening here. How do, how do we connect with that element of the American public that still hasn't quite, many of them are now, that many have been red-pilled, as we say. They're starting to understand, but still are prepared to say, oh, election rigging, that, that doesn't happen. Yeah, it's, it's interesting. I think as Americans, we have a bit of a blind spot. It's very much a cultural one where uh, certainly my generation, <clears throat> America's always been at the top. We're the biggest, we're the strongest, we're the richest, the most powerful. We're we like Alabama football. Exactly. We always Roll win. <laughs> uh, we created the car, we created flight, we went to the moon, we created internet. I mean, there's nothing America can't do. And we have this sense that kind of history began with America. We, we just, um, we just don't, way of putting we it. don't have a good long-term perspective like a lot of these countries and cultures that have been around for thousands and thousands of years. And it blinds us to what's possible. Because if we haven't seen it, we don't think it's likely. Mm -hmm. And uh, countries that have been through this over and over again, they don't have that affliction. They've seen it. They see all the telltale signs. It's, it's similar to someone who's not been sick before. The same with Islam, by the way. Americans so naive about what, Absolutely. Islam, what Islam is. I've seen it in the third world. I've seen the, the dead bodies. I've heard the stories of women who have been raped, um, whose children have been taken off into sex slavery, whose sons have been macheted to death. And you will be saying that to an American audience and someone will say, I just, I, you're Islamophobic. You know, are sheep wolfophobic? I mean, right. you know, I think, I think they are. There's, there's a reason to be fearful of this, but people, again, there's a naivete on this stuff. There is, and I liken it to, uh, if you don't get sick a lot, you may not be attuned to the symptoms when you start to get it. Yes. So with me, I start to sleep poorly a couple nights before, and I know, oh man, I got to load up on the vitamin C and because I'm going to get sick in a couple days. We, unfortunately, as American, with a lot of these kind of tyrannical things we're seeing before, we haven't personally experienced them, so we can't fathom that they're going to happen. But I mean, just look what's happening with our currency. We, we have a government that has uh, accumulated so much debt because they don't want to live within their means that it, I mean, just on uh, the, the cash debt we have now, something like $30 trillion, mm -hmm. that doesn't even include Social Security and Medicare. You throw that on, and, and we're at like 
200 trillion in debt, it, it's a number that can't be paid off. You can't tax your way to paying off a debt like that. So what do you do? Print more you, money. You print money, you devalue the currency, you pay off previous debt with deflated dollars. Uh, ta-da, the problem goes away if, if you're an idiot who doesn't understand how reality and economics works. And, and yet they're doing that. So we're starting to see our currency inflated away. Our debt is spiraling. We all know how that ends. It, it doesn't end with everyone wealthier and happier. It ends with widespread disillusionment, with unemployment, um, with people going bankrupt, with people having no hope. That eventually descends into violence and civil war and revolution. Just like clockwork. Mm -hmm. um, and yet we don't see it, or maybe we just don't want to believe it, but it's coming because there, there, we may be uh, awesome because we're Americans, but there's some forces that if you don't get in front of them in time, you can't stop. And it feels like that's what's happening here is we have so much authoritarianism creeping in. We have so much tyranny. And then now we have what's happening with this currency. It, it, I worry that we have a perfect storm uh, of insanity that's headed our way that we can't stop because we put our heads in our sand and pretended it couldn't happen to us for too long. Well, it's so insane that it can't be accidental. It has to be deliberate. So what do you think is the end game here? What do you think is the goal? And it's Obama behind the scenes, you know, who's the, the, the puppeteer in my view. I mean, people say, Biden, we need to get rid of Biden. That changes nothing. He, he doesn't know where he is at a given moment. He's not making any decisions. He's made too many references. We did a full show on this. He's made far too many references to, I'm going to get in trouble. You know, I, I shouldn't have said that. You know, and this, this kind of thing walks into the bushes and, uh, and so on. What do you think is the end game here? Why the desire to destroy Americans, America's borders, America's social stability, and America's uh, uh, standing as a superpower? I think it all goes back to Obama. I think that it's such a, a key Agreed. point. It, I find it amazing that <clears throat> unlike every other president who came before him, who left Washington, they retired to their estates and their $250,000 a speech sinecures, they busied themselves with their libraries and the foundation, and they kind of just slowly faded away. Obama didn't do that. Obama bought a mansion in the middle of Washington, D.C., not all that far away from, from uh, the White House and from Congress, and what I find so fascinating is you would think a former president being in the middle of D.C., uh, many of whose former aides are now running the government, you'd think you'd see a story or two here and there. Yeah. We spotted Obama here. We spotted Obama there. You'd think you might have one news truck parked outside his mansion just mm -hmm. to see who's going in and out. Have you noticed that has never happened? We yeah. don't have a single profile from a single paper or major news publication telling us what exactly Obama is up to and who he's meeting with in D.C. So to me, that's the dog that didn't bark. They're very clearly protecting him. He's talking to them all the time. He's clearly running this administration from beginning to end. So, yeah, we can put away the illusion that Biden's in charge. Who, who knows what Kamala's up to? Um, but it's Obama running things, and it was made very clear when he was president that Obama doesn't believe that America is a uniquely good place. Mm -hmm. He doesn't buy the idea that we are the beacon of hope to the world, where we're freedom's last frontier. He doesn't believe that we're the shining city on a hill. He clearly believes that we are 
a, something of a malignant force in the and, world. And an anomaly. We We're, got lucky. Exactly. We, we, we did it by stepping on the bodies of... You know, of less fortunate countries. We're, we're evil colonialists. Yeah, there you, we go. The, you can't be anything worse in this, this age. This is Dinesh D'Souza's, yes. you know, thesis Yeah, here, the, 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 the roots the, of Obama's rage. Yep, that we're awful uh, colonialists, and we're just part of a larger global community. And so much of what's happening here is about trying to reset the world to where America is no, longly, no, no longer the sole uh, global superpower. And, and it, it's happening in real time. We, we went from... Uh, the Cold War, where it was us versus the Soviets. Soviet Union falls, the, the wall in Berlin comes down. And really for the first time in a very long time, we have a unipolar world with America at the center kind of driving everything. We don't have that anymore. No, not it's, at all. It's America, it's China. To some extent, you've got a little bit of Russia, although Russia is not nearly this massively powerful force that people want to pretend it is. And then you have in the Middle East uh, th this attempt to create Iran as the superpower, um, the center of gravity in the Middle East. That's all Obama. Yeah. The, the entire Obama-Biden foreign policy is warped by this obsession to make Iran and not Saudi Arabia and certainly not Israel uh, the center of gravity in the Middle East. And, and, and almost everything can be explained by that Iran obsession. Mm -hmm. I find it fascinating. Stay tuned for the second part of this interview with Sean Davis, CEO and co-founder of The Federalist. You're not going to want to miss it.